But let's take our Bible and turn with me as we begin to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And I'm going to ask you to turn with me and look to John chapter 4. And I want to read verse 24. John 4, 24. This is going to be where we're going to start. And then I will... I will begin by preaching through Psalm 50. We'll get there in a minute, but let's begin in John 4, verse 24. The context here is Jesus in Samaria. He's talking with a Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with that account. And uh, a, a very, very sinful woman with a shady past. And yet here she is meeting the Messiah himself. And uh, she is very committed to her Samaritan religion and even the place where they worship. And yet Jesus says to her in verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Father, we want to give heed to your word this evening. We pray that you would help us to worship you in spirit and truth. These are the people that you, O Father, seek to be your worshipers. So we want that to mark us. We want that to describe us. We we want to be genuine, heartfelt worshipers of the living God. O Father, guard us from just going through the motions. Guard us from just the externals, we pray. Use your word to teach us and to convict us and to grow us. In Jesus' name, amen. You have a quote in your outline there by Bob Coughlin. He's a worship leader with Sovereign Grace Ministries. He said, Jesus Christ never gets boring. What happens is that we can get caught up in the things that surround Jesus Christ. Oh, for heaven, when we will fix our eyes upon him alone and never be distracted away from Christ. Oh, for that day. The truth about worship is that it is central to the life of the Christian. Worship is what we were saved for. Worship is what you are called to do. Worship is your life of devotion to God. The problem is that you and I can worship God in our lives. We can even gather with the congregation of believers, and yet our minds can wander. We've been there, right? We've been there. Our minds can wander. Our thoughts can wander. We can be going through the motions. We can be doing the right thing on the outside, and yet on the inside, my mind can be a million miles away. I'm not the only one, right? We've all been there. But does God want our worship? Of course he does. But our minds do wander, and we can fall into the trap of going through the motions and worship by rote and by tradition. We can do that. So what do we do? What is the solution when that happens? And what is the word of God and the will of God and the instruction from God for us when we are finding ourselves in times like that? And I think God has given Psalm 50 for us to be a help in that exact situation. So turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 50. 
Now, as you're turning to Psalm 50, I want to remind you that worship is such a dominating theme in the whole Bible. God is good, and he deserves our worship, right? We don't worship God because we feel like it. We don't worship God because we've just gotten good things. We worship God because of who he is, first and foremost, that God is good and great and praiseworthy and deserving of all worship and glory and honor. Even Jesus said in Luke chapter 4 and verse 8, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. So we know from John 4 that God desires our worship. We know from John 9 that God saves us to worship. And yet we realize in Mark chapter 7 that even when we gather for worship, our hearts can be far away from God. It can happen to all of us. We can fall into the sin of going through the motions. We can fall into the sin of heartless formalism and rituals and externals. And, of course, the psalm will even bring out the reality that some are just out-and-out hypocrites. Some are out-and-out hypocrites who love and live for the world while they have a few scripture verses on their lips all the while. And yet here we have God the judge who gives an authoritative lesson on worship. A lesson on worship. We all need this. I need this. You need this. We all need this. And Psalm 50 is the authoritative word that we need to hear on worship. And I have been convicted this week, and I pray and trust that God will use this word in your heart and life as well, so that we will all grow together in the word of God. Follow with me. Let me read Psalm 50, and then we'll look at it together. From the title, it is a psalm of Asaph. By the way, I read those titles because those are part of the Hebrew text. They are inspired. That is part of Psalm 50, a psalm of, a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken. He has summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him. It is very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you, reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. But, but to the wicked... 
God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. And you let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. But I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces and there will be none to deliver. But he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, pardon me, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. And this is for the choir director. This is the first of Psalms in the book of Psalms that is attributed to the author Asaph. He wrote this Psalm and he wrote others in Psalms 73 to 83. Well, who's Asaph? Well, Asaph was the leader in the temple worship appointed by King David. So David was the king. He was kind of like Asaph was the worship leader that David appointed to lead in singing and to lead in music and to lead in the choir in the temple, the tabernacle worship at that time. Well, when we come to Psalm 50, we come to learn about the God who is the God of the covenant. We see that in verse 5 and verse 16, that our God is the God of covenant, And we have to read the psalm tonight with a little bit of Exodus in the back of our minds. Remember when God made the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai? And remember when he made the covenant with Israel and he revealed himself to them and he revealed himself with lightning and thunder and and manifestations of his power and glory and, and God showed himself to be powerful and amazing. He's gonna do that again tonight in Psalm 50 in our text. Now, let's be, let's be clear. The Bible has so many themes, so many themes that sort of thread their way through the Bible. And one theme is the theme of covenant. Covenant. It is an important theme in the Old Testament that our God is a covenant-making and our God is a covenant-keeping God. And that gives us tremendous comfort. That gives us tremendous comfort that our God is a covenant-keeping God. Well, what we want to do this evening as we look at Psalm 50 is we want to learn about worship. But we need to do so in a setting of a courtroom. And we need to do so as if God would catapult all of us into a heavenly courtroom where the opening six verses are going to bring us into the courtroom when the judge enters. And then the judge is going to give his case to the religious formalists and then the religious hypocrites. There are two different accusations that God the judge will speak. So let's enter, as it were, the language, the, the figure, the picture of Psalm 50, And let's enter the courtroom of heaven 
and hear God the judge speak his case. And by the way, I put it like that because notice in verse 1, the mighty one God the Lord has spoken. Notice in verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. And then verse 16, but to the wicked God says. So here's the judge in the courtroom of heaven. He is the authority over all things, and he has a word for all those whom he has brought to judgment. In your outline, follow with me. Let's just kind of walk through the psalm together, and I'm going I'm to just pull out a few points, and we're going to turn to some scriptures and make it really practical. So there's a lot more detail that could be said through the psalm, uh, but hopefully tonight you'll get the gist of it as we study it together. Number one in your outline, we ought to stand in awe of God the judge. We ought to stand in awe of God the judge because verse 1 is like the piling and the piling and the piling of terms to emphatically show the entrance of the almighty God. It it would be like in, in a courtroom when you hear all rise and then the judge enters the room. God the judge enters. Verse 1, the mighty one, God Yahweh, the Lord, he has spoken. In verse 1, he summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness. He's the judge where the heavens and the earth and the east and the west are all the witnesses testifying to what the judge is going to say. He shines forth from Zion. And if we look at verses 3 and 4 and 5, in theological terms, this is called a theophany. Now, a theophany is kind of a a fancy theological word that simply means God manifests himself in a visible way. The invisible God shows himself in a visible way. For example, on Mount Sinai. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law, there was lightning and thunder and peals of of thunder and there was an earthquake and God manifested his glory in a blazingly awesome way. That was a theophany. Same thing here. Look at verse 3. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him. It is very tempestuous all around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth in order to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Even the heavens declare his righteousness, for God is the judge. It's almost like the language is a courtroom. Here's the judge. The heavens and the earth are all witnesses, and God is summoning his people to the courtroom, and God is about to speak to his people. And yet, as God is manifesting himself, he does so with great power, kind of like at Mount Sinai. Gather my people who are in covenant with me. Now, What we're going to look at for the rest of the psalm is pretty bold. And if you and I get this, it's pretty convicting. I don't think there's one person in this room who can sit here and say, I've got this worship thing down. 
you know, my, my heart doesn't wander, my mind doesn't wander, I worship God all the time perfectly. I mean, there's not one of us who can say that. And so what we're going to look at here tonight, if the Spirit of God does convict your heart, He does so with love. And He does so because He wants to grow you in your worship and grow you in your knowledge of Him and in your living for Him. I do want to share this as well, though, before we move on to point two. Christian, in Jesus Christ, as a believer in Jesus Christ, the mighty one God, the Lord, is the righteous one, and he is the judge, and he is full of love and full of mercy toward you in Christ. He, don't read this and think, oh, he's going to bring me to judgment and strike me down and cast me into hell and tear me into pieces. That's, that would be the wrong interpretation for a true believer in Christ. You need to hear that. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled all the obligations of the covenant that you could never even begin to fulfill. He has done it in your place. He has fulfilled it and done it all. That's why he says, come to me and have rest for your soul. So, but nonetheless, even in Christ, number one in your outline is true. We ought to stand in awe of God the judge. Now, in your outline, number two, what do we do? When God the judge has entered the room, the heavens and the earth are there as witnesses. He's got a word for those in covenant with him. This would be Israel of old. Those whom he made a covenant with, we call it the Mosaic Covenant on Mount Sinai. It's the old covenant. It was a covenant that God initiated, but there were covenant obligations. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Well, we ought to learn from this. Beginning in verses 7 and following, what do we do? God wants us to give your full heart of thanks to God. Follow with me in verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. You can almost hear the judge kind of at the bar, and he has a case against my people. He says in verse 7, O Israel, I'm going to testify against you. I am God. I am your God, meaning I'm your covenant-making God. I'm faithful to you, but I've got a case against you, Israel. Verse 8, I don't reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings, which you continually offer before me. I'm not reproving you for going through those right motions. Verse 9, I... I take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. Why? Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? What's God doing? Almost in a little bit of a sarcastic way here. Almost a little bit humorous in a way. God is saying, Israel, people of my covenant, I'm not reproving you for the religious deeds that you're doing because you're actually doing the right thing. You're performing the right sacrifices. You're doing the right ceremonies. You're doing the right deeds. But here's the problem. You're doing your deeds 
in a formalistic external way of just going through the motions. It's like you're coming to worship because you think God needs it. You're offering the sacrifice because you think God needs the bull. He needs the goat. He needs the blood. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. God, in verses 9 to 13, doesn't need their offerings. They're not doing God a favor in their worship. Let's be clear. God doesn't need anything. This is the doctrine of the aseity of God. He doesn't need anything. He has all that he needs for existence and satisfaction in himself. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need my money. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need our worship. He he doesn't need us. That's the beauty of the aseity of God. But Israel fell into that thinking of, you know what? We'll go and offer the animal. We'll go and sacrifice. We'll go to the temple. We'll go and worship. We'll go and do all this. And we're going through the motions, but yet their heart was far from God. It's kind of like the Samaritans in John chapter 4 when the Samaritan woman said, well, we worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. We, we've got our sacrificial system. We've got our priesthood. We've got our religious mountain, Mount Gerizim. Jesus said, no, no, no. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem is the one place where you have to worship. But God desires those who worship in spirit and truth. Church family, There's a lot of application points here. We can all, we can all fall into insincerity in our worship. We can all fall into formalism in our worship. We can all fall into this idea of being mechanically pious in our worship. Let me read Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13. Man, this verse just gets me every time. Listen to this. Isaiah 29, 13. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words, and they honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. They draw near to God outwardly, but their heart is far from God. I also find it interesting that in our psalm, in verse 8, God says, I'm not reproving you for what you're doing. Your sacrifices are fine. You're going to the right place. You're doing the right thing. You're offering the right animal. You're doing it according to the letter of the law. That's appropriate and good. And verse 8 even says you do it continually. They're doing it properly and frequently and rightly and externally. And yet, if you say, but why are you doing that? Because uh, we have to. What if, what if I were to rephrase that for you and me a little bit more in our modern day? Why do we go to church? Why, why do we sing? Why, why do you wake up early in the morning and read your Bible and pray? Why do we write a check or give online financial? Why? Why give money to God? 
Why do we evangelize? Why do we worship? Why do we do the things that we do? Why are we here? And someone might scratch their head and they think, um, because I have to? I don't know what else to do. Let me give you some wrong reasons. Some wrong reasons to worship. Number one for reciprocation. You know, I will go and worship God so that I can get something from God. That's all over the place, right? I will sort of give to God this if I can get something in return from God. Almost the principle of reciprocity. Or another wrong reason for worship would be justification. I will do this in order to be right with God. I'll go to church to be right with God. I'll, I'll sing, I'll give, I'll do this to be right with God. Or maybe more practical for us, perhaps, a wrong reason to worship God would be for increased affection. If I do this, God will love me more. If I do this, God will be more happy with me because of what I do and because of how I perform and because of how I sing and because of how much I give and because of how much I do this or do that. It's, it's almost like if I do it, God will love me more. Or another wrong reason to worship would be just magic rituals. You kind of put in a religious deed and then poof, out comes a religious outcome. A good result, a happiness of life. If I sort of put in a good work and a good deed and, and then poof, something out that is really good and happy comes. But no, those are not right reasons to worship God. God does not want our externals only. God doesn't need our externals. God doesn't need our externals. But here's the, here's the interesting thing. But doesn't God command us to sing, to worship, to read the Bible, to evangelize, to pray? I mean, doesn't he command those things? And yet sometimes we can do them in a heartless way. So if God commands it, the solution is not to stop doing it. Rather, the solution is to do so with a heart of genuine gratitude. The solution is, is to come to God with thankfulness of heart. And in your Bible, here's the proof. Look at verse 14. What does God want? I'm not reproving you for your sacrifices, but rather, I don't need. I don't need what you offer. Don't just go through the motions. You know what God wants? Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He wants your heart. So, sure, does he want singing and Bible reading and evangelism and preaching of the word and a life of worship? Absolutely, he wants that. But he doesn't just want the motion. He wants it from a heart of gratitude. So offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High, meaning fulfill your covenant obligation. If God saved you, if he delivered you, then walk in a manner worthy of him with a heart of thankfulness. In your outline, I think I put there, I, I don't remember, I think I did, some ways that you can do this, some helps for you in this. How do we, how do we 
Worship God rightly from the heart. Number one, I think preparing early for worship can be a blessing. Persevering during worship can be very important. And then putting it into practice afterward can certainly be very helpful in guarding the heart. We've all been there when we sing the song and the PowerPoint and we're mouthing the words, but yet our mind can be a million miles away. And our thoughts can be elsewhere. And when that happens, what do we do? We don't give up. We don't say, oh, I should never sing. Lord, forgive me for my wandering mind. And then come back to it. And start right there and keep keep at it. Worshiping the Lord with a joyful heart. So what does God want? Well, he's the judge in the heavenly courtroom and he's got a case against his people and he wants you to give him your full heart of thanks. He doesn't just want the motions. He wants your inner heart of thanks that will then result in the motions of honoring and glorifying God. And then in your outline, look at number three. God, the judge, has another word. And boy, this is scary. Let me just summarize it for us briefly. In verses 16 to 23, God has a word not just for his people who are in covenant with him, but now he's got a word in verse 16, but to the wicked. These are not the believers. These are not the people who are are walking with God in covenant. These are the hypocrites. What do we do? Number three in your outline, you see it. Tremble at God's anger toward the hypocrites. These are the Bible talkers with their lips, but they are the sinful evil doers with their lives. These are the people who know the ways of God, but they, they don't follow God. They don't care about God. They don't make any effort to live all out for God. Notice. Verse 16, to the wicked, God says, what right do you have to take my words on your lips? Who do you think you are to take my covenant and put it in your mouth? Reason, verse 17, you hate discipline, meaning my reproof from scripture. You hate it, and you cast my words behind you. It's the picture of someone walking down the road with, I mean, picture it like a, like, like a fruit or a banana peel, and they just toss it behind them. You take God's word, and you just toss it behind you, giving no thought to obeying God's word. These are the people who, maybe a theological word would be antinomians. Some may think, ah, I know what the Bible says. I know what the Bible says. And maybe they talk about God. Maybe they may say they belong to God. And they have a little God sprinkled in their life, but they sin openly and freely and habitually and enjoyably with their lives. You know, when I think of this, I think of the black Hebrew Israelites They've got a few Bible verses on their lips, but man, their, their conduct, their heart, their anger is vicious. I think of the word of faith movement. I think of the prosperity preachers. They lie, they steal, they cheat, they live immorally. Look at 
Look at what God has a case against them. Verse 18, when you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You're actually delighted in that thief. And verse 18, you actually associate with adulterers. You join yourselves to them. It's like you have fellowship is the idea with them. Verse 19, you let your mouth loose in evil, your tongue frames deceit, you sit and speak against your brother, you slander your mother's son. Interesting. This is in order, the second table of the law. Do not lie, do not commit adultery, do not steal. I mean, these are like the people in sex trafficking and the porn industry and the business fraud and People who go into abortion mills and they say, I know Jesus. Like the lady yesterday who said to me at the abortion mill, she said, I believe in Jesus too. I said, no, you don't. No, you don't. This, these are the people in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable for any good work. These are the people in Jeremiah chapter 7. Maybe you remember this account. In Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah is told by God to go to the courts of the Lord's house and preach an open-air sermon. And he goes and he says to the people, you need to amend your ways. You need to practice justice. But here's what you do. You are trusting in deceptive words. You're stealing, you're murdering, you're committing adultery, you're swearing falsely, and you're offering sacrifices to Baal, and you're walking after other gods. And then you come and you stand before me in the temple, and you say, the temple of the Lord. Doesn't work that way. You can't do that. And then Jeremiah says, it's a den of robbers to you. You have made the house of God a den of robbers because of your sin. What's the point? God has a case against the wicked. He is the judge of heaven and earth, and he's got a case against those who have the law of God on their lips, but their life is full of the practice of sin. Verse 21, there's something really startling here. Look at it in your Bible. These things you have done... And I kept silent. Boy, we're kind of living in that day, aren't we? People are sinning, 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 and God is seemingly silent. And here's the problem. End of verse 21. You thought that I was just like you? Well, God hasn't judged me. Does that mean he takes sin lightly? I mean, if God is not taking action on my sin now, does that mean that God is unconcerned about my sin? Or if if God delays judgment, does that mean removal of judgment? Well, a lot of people in our culture would say, yeah. But no, God is not like us. He is not just like us. I reprove you. I state the case before your eyes. So again, here's the setting. God is the judge in the heavenly courtroom. And he says, bring all the people to me for judgment. Here are the people who have come to covenant with me. And they're just going through the motions, but their heart is far from God. And yet here on the other side are the wicked who have the law of God on their lips, but they are practicing lives of evil. 
So what does God want? What does God want? In your outline, I give you a couple of things. Number one, he wants your heart. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. I, I don't think I'll ever forget. I was a seminary student in chapel, and a preacher came, and he preached this one verse. And he made a whole point about obeying God from the heart. That's what he wants. He wants obedience that comes from the heart, like Romans 6 verse 17 says. Number two, he wants your life, your life. Romans 12 verse 1, present your body a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. He wants your life, not just Sunday. He wants your life. Third, he wants our love. He wants our love like Galatians 5 verse 13, where the apostle Paul says, through your freedom in Christ, use it not as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. He he wants our love to motivate our life of service. And then he wants our boast, our boast. Philippians chapter three and verse three. True believers who have the circumcision of the heart. We worship in the spirit of God. We glory in Christ. We have no confidence in the flesh. Now, I want to draw this to a close, and I need to do so quickly. But look at the end of the psalm. Look at verse 22. I mean, if there was ever a warning, man, if there was ever a Harsh warning, sounds harsh, at least to our modern ears. Verse 22, now consider this, you who forget God, or, or, God says, he's the judge, I will tear you to pieces, and there will be none to deliver, like no escape, no escape. That's the warning. But look at the word of comfort. Look at the welcome at the end of the psalm, verse 23. But whoever offers the sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies, he honors me. And to the one who orders his way aright, to hear what God says to the true worshiper, I will show you the salvation of God. This is interesting. In the Hebrew, we can talk about this later if you want. It could be, I will show you the Yeshua of God, the Savior of God, the Savior who is God, perhaps referring to the Messiah. God shows the beauty and the glory of Christ. Okay, so how do we worship rightly? Okay, so we take all this, we see that God doesn't want our formalistic worship. He doesn't want our external worship only. He certainly doesn't want hypocritical worship. So what do we do in closing? Number one, in your outline, focus on your heart. Focus on your heart. When you prepare for worship, when you're in worship, focus on your heart. Number two, flee to Christ. When your mind wanders, guess what? Go back to Christ. It's okay. Go back to Christ. 
Number three, flow forth with thanksgiving. That's what he wants. That's the solution for a distracted heart. Thanksgiving. God, here's what you've done for me. And fourth, we ought to fixate and focus on heaven, which is a world of undistracted worship to our great God. May the Lord do that work in all of our hearts. Help us to worship Him rightly. That's our prayer. That's our hope. You know, we're all there together. We are growing as being worshipers. And yet we want to worship our God in spirit and truth. And He'll help us so that we can do that rightly for His glory. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the word that you have given from our psalm. Thank you for the needed convicting convicting words and the needed comforting words as well. Thank you that you promise that you will show the salvation of God to all who come to you with thankful hearts. So Lord, we want to do that even this evening in our time of prayer. In Jesus' name.